The Bible passage this morning is from 1 Thessalonians, and you can find it on page 1797 in the Pew Bible in front of you if you like to follow along. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Thanks, Jack. You guys are all the good snow drivers, huh? This is my lost and found mug that may be yours. It's a Yeti, so be honest, right? Um, come and get it if it's yours after the service. Um, okay, so this is my sixth talk this weekend. And so I think I know where I am, uh, but that's about it. Okay, so we had a really great um, conference. There were more than 500 people here. It was so great to be able to open up our church to people from multiple different churches. And, um, you know, our church infused some of the capital necessary to do that. Like, it didn't all totally pay for itself. There were a couple private investors, but we put in some money as a church to bless all these people that— a lot of them went to other churches. And it was a really great—it really felt like there were a lot of people I didn't recognize. It felt like a multi-church event. And so part of the way we structured it was to encourage pastors to send people to church— or to the conference, and then to preach their own sermon with whatever they wanted to add, like at their church on Sunday morning. And so um, this is my attempt to do that. And the good news is, is that there was like a bunch of stuff that Scott Kyle worked on for me that I didn't get to in my third plenary session yesterday, which will make it this look like I've spent a lot of time on this sermon, which will be great. Okay, so let's dive right in. So what I want to do is I want to, I want to preach out of this passage, this first Thessalonians passage. And okay, before I get going, I, one more caveat. Okay. One of the reasons why not being easily offended is so important is because it is incredibly selfish to wish for someone not to warn people who have not yet made your mistakes to not be warned so that you won't have to be reminded of yours. Okay? Like, I, like listen, I get when I talk about sexual immorality that, like, basically all of us have committed some kind of sexual immorality on some level. Some of us like some pretty awful stuff, okay, that we would never want known. And like, listen, I get that. And God, and God loves you. And sexual sin is not the worst sin. Pride is. It might be the most popular sin, but it's not the, it's not the worst sin. God can save you even in your sexual immorality. The only sin he really can't save you in is pride. He has to save you out of pride. And ultimately, he's going to pull you out of sexual immorality. Does that make sense? And so, like, I know that if you're divorced, or if you've committed sexual immorality, or that if you've 
been greedy your whole life. I mean, like, there's all kinds of sins, and in the church we can't ask people who are supposed to exposit God's word and, and draw us into what God wants us to do. We can't ask them not to talk about the things, the memory of which hurts us. And so I can try as best as I can to be kind, but I can't not talk about the stuff. Does that make sense? So I just, just bear that in mind. It's not that I don't care about you. If I talk about things that, that you've done wrong, it's because I, you should care about all the other people who will walk into those same traps if I don't do my work of warning them. Does that make sense? Okay. And your tolerance of those things and unwillingness to be offended by them is part of your love towards the other brothers and sisters around you, okay? So let's, uh, let's, let's dig into this passage. Um, one of the things I said yesterday in a number of situations is, I know that in our culture, we're only supposed to talk about the intersectionally most oppressed people, and that the only pe- person, therefore, that can talk about their sexual um, oppression or difficulty in our present moment are transgender people, okay? I think that that is a very foolish way to look at the world. The people who are the most oppressed always do require special attention. Because usually they're a small group of people, and usually we tend to be flippant about their needs and what's happening to them. And so they should get a certain amount of special attention in many cases. Otherwise, it will be overlooked. Does that make sense? That's important. But to, but to, but to deny everybody else talking about what they're struggling with is kind of like saying that only people with esophageal cancer can talk about their health problems. It, it doesn't ultimately work, and, because, and this is partly why this is important, is it's not like only 3% of people struggle. Like, Transgender people are less than 1% that are clinically gender dysphoric, and they struggle maybe, maybe we could even say more than any other subgroup of people struggling with their sexuality. But it's not as though they're the only people struggling with sexuality. In a culture as sexually broken as our culture, with generational sexual harm being passed on over and over again, with sexual assault happening all the time, with our own damage to ourselves and our own promiscuities and sexual immoralities, and how every act of sexual immorality harms other people and not just ourselves, and has social rippling effects. Every person, every person is struggling with their gender and their sexuality. Every person. Like Philo the Jew said in the first century, everybody is fighting a great battle, so be kind to everyone you meet. Does that make sense? And so, um, one of the things I want to talk about out of this passage is our pursuit of sexual um, holiness and also how we're meant to do it together, okay? So here's the three things we'll talk about. One is to seek to please God is to seek to be what this passage calls sanctified. I want to talk about what that means for a minute. Second, sanctification immediately points to our sexuality. He says, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, colon, which is a, bit, a little bit of an ironic thing to call it in English related to this topic. But then he says, you should be sanctified. Right? And then he says, and you should avoid sexual immorality. And then third, that what we do with our sexuality, we do together, which I know is a strange pun or kind of irony to say it, but it won't be that weird, I promise. Okay, so to seek to please God is to seek to be sanctified, right? He says, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you to do it more and more in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus— It is God's will that you should be sanctified. So whatever sanctified means, he's saying, the apostle is saying, it's, this is not just me saying, like, we're asking you and urging you to do it because we can't make you do anything. Christianity, in its founding documents, not in all of its history, 
but in how we are taught to believe and live it out, absolutely affirms the sanctity of the human conscience. Nobody can force you to do anything. The truth is supposed to accent your conscience, and the truth forces you to do things. As you agree with it, and then participate with it, and see that what is pleasing to God is pleasing, and increasingly pleasing to you, and then you choose voluntarily to do what's good. Does that make sense? Now, he says that on the basis of all that, I urge you to be sanctified. Now, I want to make two quick statements about this. Last night, um, Rose Turnley um, was on the singleness panel, and she said, when I was in like junior high and high school, I I said that I wanted to please God, but what that really meant was that I was afraid of God. And so I basically, she says, I used the euphemism, I wanted to please God, because that sounds more spiritual, but I really just was afraid that God couldn't be pleased, and I was constantly trying to please Him, okay? And that is a misunderstanding that a lot of Christians suffer under, okay? But that is not what pleasing God in this passage means, or in Romans 12, or in any passage of the Bible, really. Right? And she recognized, she was like, that was a misunderstanding I had to grow out of. That's a misunderstanding some of us have to grow out of. One of the interesting things about this passage is that he says to these people, you are pleasing God. And I want you to obey the instructions of Jesus such that you can please God more and more. Right? Now think about the logic of that. They could please God more and more. Now he's, he's not just saying there that you could be more, like, that you could keep doing it. He's saying that the means by which they're pleasing God is something that should be increased. That is, it should become more consistent. It should be more broad. It should be more complete, right? Well, anything that doesn't please God is ultimately something that's not really in line with his character, his standards, his glory, his truth, which means it's not good. So to tell a people, listen, I want to call you more into Jesus so that you can, so that you can please him more and more— implicitly he's saying, look, we're doing all kinds of stuff right now that doesn't please Jesus. And yet, he tells, tells these people that you are already pleasing God. Okay? That is one of the, par like, the paradoxical tensions of what it means to live in Christian faith. That by faith alone, we come into union with Christ and are one with him in a spiritual and metaphysical way that we don't completely understand. And his Beauty before God is the beauty that we bear in the eyes of God, and God is pleased with us in Christ. And when we turn to him in faith, he is pleased. He's an incredibly cheerful being. He's easy to please. Like, one step in the right direction, and he's thrilled, right? And that we're in union with the perfection of his Son, and he's pleased. And yet, in his Son, on the authority of the Lord Jesus— we are called further to do so more and more. Not so that necessarily he'll be more pleased with us. That is, he, he won't hate us less. But pleasure can be increased. He's fully pleased in his son. And he can be fully pleased in his union with us. And fully pleased in our coming in full union with the Christ. We are already metaphysically, we're spiritually in union with Christ. But we're increasingly morally in union with Christ. We're increasingly more transformed in our minds in union with Christ. And that's part of the progressive transformation of what it means to belong to him. And so we can be comforted by the fact that, like, listen, if you're following Jesus with all the crap you're doing, even in relationship to sexual immorality, right? Like, the thing he's going to talk to them very sternly about is sexual immorality, which is like a real thing. It's an important thing. And he's like, look, you're already pleasing God. You're walking with Jesus. Now listen. 
We need to do it more and more, okay? Because it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now, okay, sanctified is a religious term, right? And so sanctified is a way of referring to being set apart as holy. The problem is, is that holy is also a religious term too, right? Now, the, what sanctification— So the, both of those, the word holy and the word sanctified come from the same Greek words. Hagios is the word, if you care to throw it at somebody pridefully. Um, but basically it means something that is set apart for a certain purpose, and that purpose is a sacred or divine purpose, okay? So it has a setting apart— part of it, and it also has a setting apart for God and God's purposes part of it, okay? So um, my wife used to get upset when I would um, use her pots and pans to um, sterilize sawdust to grow mushrooms. <laughs> and I mean, the number of times I used her pots and pans to sterilize um, year-old horse manure was very few. Okay? And I cleaned it out well. It's just in your head. You don't want poop in your, in your pants, right? And she's like, Nick, you're offending the sanctification of my pots, right? Like, she knew I would understand that, right? So she was like, you, you can't do that, right? You need to get your own pots to be sanctified for mushrooms, okay? Right? And so like we, so I got my own pots, and they're sanctified. They're my vessels for mushrooms, right? So like, they're not for that. One of the examples I use is you, you just don't wear a wedding dress to mow the lawn, right? And generally speaking, you don't bring a lawnmower to your wedding, right? They're for different things. They're set apart for those things. They're even designed for those things. They're e actually created purposefully for those things. And see, you are created purposefully to be a sacred vessel of God, right? Your, your most fundamental identity is not, as Freud said, that you're a sexual being. E your sexuality is profoundly consequential and potent and foundational. But even deeper than that is that you are the image bearer of a holy God. That is your most foundational, your most fundamental identity. And then it must shape your sexuality, right? Freud didn't seem to understand that or accept it. What that means is, is that he's saying that the purpose, what it means to follow Jesus, what we're doing, the gracious striving that we're engaging in, if you summed it up in one word, it is this. It is God's will for you to be sanctified, right? To be set fully apart for God's purposes, and therefore our main pursuit is his will. And when we pursue his will, what's the result of that? It pleases him. And in Romans 12, it actually says that when we are transformed by the renewing of our mind and no longer conform to this world, the result is, is that we will find his will. And then it says his good, his pleasing, his perfect will. And all three of those words are used ambiguously as to the subject. Good in whose eyes, pleasing in whose eyes, and perfect in whose eyes? And the answer is, when your mind is transformed and you're no longer conformed to this world, it has always been good in God's eyes, and you see it good in your eyes. It has always been pleasing in God's eyes, and you finally realize that it's pleasing in yours. And it's always been perfect in God's eyes, and you finally realize that it's perfect in your eyes. So you come in union with God like you were always meant to. Right? That's what sanctification is. It is to come into agreement in the use of ourselves wholly into the purposes for which we were created, the purposes of God, and what we were set apart for. Does that make sense? Okay. What does that have to do with sexuality? So the very next thing he says is, okay, now that you've got that, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable and not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Okay. There's a couple issues we need to deal with. 
one, the word avoid. Okay, now listen. The word avoid, you can easily read it, especially if you don't want the Bible to say what it says because you want to do what you want. It's easy to be like, avoid. See, that's just kind of like a, you know, avoid pears because they're kind of a pretentious fruit. Or like, avoid like hot peppers if you have a geographic tongue. But that's not really what avoid means there. It doesn't mean like, hey, you might want to think about this. Avoid there is used as a tactical term. Because in order to be successful in avoiding sexual immorality, you have to think about what you're like, right? Because you— when people commit sexual immorality, the, the old church fathers used to say, one of the reasons sexual immorality is often not as quite as deadly or quite as damnable as like pride, for example, is because we usually, we often commit sexual immorality out of infirmity, out of weakness, and out of stupidity. And when we are less presumptuous about sins, they're in some ways less directly offensive to God. That's one of the reasons why like pride is usually considered the worst sin, right? In Reformed theology, unbelief is the worst sin. Because it's a denial of reality, cognitively and willfully. Most of the people I know that are Christians, at least, that fall into sexual, sexual immorality, they were just too weak to pull it off. They hadn't grown strong enough yet, or they, they were confused about some stuff, right? I'm not saying it's not bad, right? It's, it is the most popular sin. We need to deal with it. But Christians often act like it's the worst sin. And usually it's because people know that sexual immorality affects more people than just yourself, which is true. So does pride. The Bible does say twice that thing about sexual immorality, though, that it affects more people. Avoid is a tactical term. If you're going to be sexually moral, you are going to have to think about how human beings fall into sexual immorality. How do people fall in love with each other at work? What happens when you say one phrase to, to a coworker or somebody that you know that tips off implicitly that if they made a sexual advance towards you, you might receive it rather than rebuff it. How do, like, there's all these tactics and diagnostics of how, peop, how these things happen, right? If you've gone out with a guy a couple of times and he invites you over to his apartment, should you go? No! Right? That's bad tactics. Because you're getting in a situation— Like, so I—I've I, I known a couple Marines. You know what they tell you about fair fights? They say, if you are in a fair fight, you've already lost. You didn't do your homework. You're a sucky soldier. You're, the point is not being a good enough soldier to win a fair fight. You have to make sure that every single fight you're ever in is as unfair as possible. You, like, you want people to walk into, like, a ravine with, like, tar in it. Like, with, like, blindfolds on so that you can shoot them like fish in a barrel. Like, that's what you want. That's tactics. Tactics precede fighting. Look, it's the same thing with sexual morality. Right? I don't have a porn issue, but I have, like, every electronic device I have sends a report of everything I look at, not just porn, but shopping, to my bosses on the elder board and to my wife's email address. Do I need it? No. But I might. I don't know what moment I will need it. And at that moment that I will need it, it will be there. And when I am that shallow, that in some moment the only thing is my wife finding out and not the Lord, like that will be a shallow, weak moment. But listen, I got tactics for that. I got a, tact I got a tactic for—I want to have a tactic for every situation. Avoid sexual immorality. It's tactical, right? Okay, and then each of you should learn to control your own body. That's a, that's a fun translation, okay? So the word translated body— Partly to not offend us, partly to try to be clear in the translation. So the word is probably best translated vessel. Member or vessel. 
Okay, so what does that mean, right? So vessel, it could mean body, right? Your vessel, right? It could mean, some people think it means a wife, because all the pronouns are masculine here. And, and in like First Peter, um, women are referred to as like the weaker vessel, right? Which is, so maybe that's wives, right? But basically it's a completely different context where they're basically saying like, why do you want your wife to be harder? Don't you want her to be like nice? Don't you want her to be nurturing? Don't you want her to be loving and kind? Why would you treat her harshly as a dude? Because that's your default. So that she has to become harder. So that she can stand up for herself. That's not what you want. If you do that, God's going to be hard with you. And the first way he's going to be hard with you is to stop listening to your prayers. Right? That's a different sermon. The point is, is that that's not a sufficient context probably for that. It's extremely unlikely that that's what it means. The other possibility is that it actually is a euphemism for your sexual apparatus. Your vessel. Right? Now, one of the things that's interesting, though, is, is that the, the context of the word vessel that is predominantly used throughout the Bible is actually in the things that were used in Old Testament worship. So, like, there were pots and kettles and candlesticks and so on, and all of those were set apart explicitly for the work of God. They were, they were for something. They were meant for that thing. They were one of his vessels, right? And each one of us is supposed to be sanctified. And the first step of being sanctified is to avoid sexual immorality. And we need to learn to control our own vessel, right? Get it? And so here's the thing that we need to recognize. There is no version of Christianity in which you can avoid self-control as a profound and central virtue that must be pursued with profound effort, right? Part of the heart of Christianity is a rejection of expressive individualism. The idea that you should do whatever's inside of you. Just let it out. Just live your truth. Just do your thing. Christianity is like, no, like two-thirds of what's in there is just really awful, and you need to actually kill it. Like Galatians 5 says, you should crucify the sinful nature or the flesh, right? You, so basically like, no, there's a good part of what's in you you need to beat to death. Like that's the Christian message. And then that which is the image of God that is being renewed in Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit, you want to give that the most space possible. And you want to live that truth, which is God's truth, in you. Right? Until it is you. Right? And so— Do you remember that? That's, that's exactly what Second Peter 1 says, right? Add your faith, knowledge, to knowledge— to goodness, knowledge, sorry, to, to faith, goodness, to goodness, knowledge, then to knowledge, what? What's fourth? Self-control. And then the self-control is what? Perseverance, which is like self-control, long time, right? Indefinite self-control. And then what happens? What's the next step after, after perseverance? It's godliness. And then like two steps later, you can start loving people success, like successfully. Like after you're strong, you like know what's good, you have knowledge, you have self-control, you can do self-control indefinitely, then you can actually be kind to people, and then you're strong enough to love them consistently and well. Right? You, there's no root to that without self-control. There's no way to be sanctified without learning how to control your member, your vessel. Right? And one of the ways to build control of your vessel, whether that's your body or your sexual body, is to build self-control in everything. Right? Like, Nicole Kyle was like, in one of the, one of the things I was going through, she's like, look, hey, listen. She's like, I start, we start with like, uh, like, she said, I actually sometimes will walk by the fridge and say, I'm not going to eat ice cream tonight because I'm not going to cheat on my husband. Right? Because the point there is, is like, I need to say no in all the places I should be saying no. 
I need to know when I should say no. I need to say no, no matter what my glands are doing or my mouth, even if my mouth is salivating. I need to say no in every situation where I should say no. The more I give in to myself in some things, the easier it is to give in myself to other things. The same reason I get my butt out of bed to go work out is because I'm not going to cheat on my wife. Right? Like that's, that's all related. Your control of yourself, your ability to get yourself to do stuff. Taking control of your member, your vessel, and doing what you're supposed to do with self-control and persevering in it is fundamental to sanctification. Now, partly because God really loves you and loves everybody else, it's also fundamental to basically every form of success. But that is not why you should do it. You should do it because you have your eye on spiritual success. And then God's always working multiple levels for your good. Just let it happen. Right? Okay, let's move on. Three. What we do with our sexuality, we do together. I know that sounds a little weird. It's not going to be as weird as it looks. Okay, so each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Honorable is a social word. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of his brother or sister. So notice that as the Apostle Paul, it's a, very, it's a very lean passage about sexual morality, but he puts into this passage a fundamental reality that not only is sexual morality about pleasing God and being holy and therefore personally controlling our vessel, but it is a fundamentally social reality because we should not harm or take advantage of our brother or our sister. Sexual, sexual immorality is social. It affects everyone, and it affects everyone much more than you know. And sexual morality is also social and affects everyone more than we know. Now, you might not think this would have to be in the Bible, but there are three places in the New Testament where Christians are explicitly told not to participate in orgies. Okay? Where, the, where in 1 Peter, in Galatians, and in Romans, right, Paul and Peter go, look, listen, in case this is unclear, do not participate in orgies. Okay? Now that's actually relatively significant in this sense. You see, in pagan religion, the idea was is that you could have sex socially, but the results of it weren't social. And you see, the Bible says that it's exactly the reverse. You have sex modestly and privately within the, like, the sanctity and the separateness of the marriage covenant, Right? And what you do there affects everyone else. Right? Do you know what the contagion percentage of divorce is? That if somebody in a social circle gets divorced, how much it increases the rate of divorce in everybody around them in the first level of relationships? It's 70%. At least in one of the things I just read recently. And to the second level of relationships, you know what it is? It's another 30%. Two relationships out. Why do you think the rate of promiscuity among 20-somethings in evangelical churches is something like 80 or 85 percent? Right? Is it just because nobody's serious at all about their faith? It's just it's the young people. They can't control their vessels. Well, maybe partly. Maybe partly. Maybe it's because they've absorbed the religion of expressive individualism like all of us. And young people express it usually through fornicating, and older people express it through like ladder climbing at their work. And as you get older, you know you, you're worldly in slightly different ways, Right? It might be that. But here's what it is. I think, as much as anything else, 
When 12% of them are fornicating, you're going to get 24% of them fornicating. When 24% of them are fornicating, you're going to get that 31% of them fornicating. When 31% of them are fornicating, you're going to get 46% of them fornicating. When 46% of them are—do you get what I'm going with this? Like, you get this social out— you get these ripples where, like, as things become normal in this social circle, more people do what's normal in that social circle, but then this social circle is connected to these social circles, and what's normal in this social circle becomes normal in these social circles, and then it's just kind of like—it feeds out everywhere. That's one of the reasons why you can meet people who don't know anybody with a good marriage. And then you can know other people that they hardly know anybody that doesn't have a good marriage. You don't even—we don't even realize how much we're putting pressure on each other. Like, for example, like, I—like, we're friends with the Flotmeyers, for example, right? And we're friends with a number of other couples in the church who seem to have really nice marriages. Maybe they have terrible marriages. I don't know, right? Like the Hales. Who knows what they're doing behind closed doors? But I know them. They're nice people. They seem like they have a good marriage to me, right? That—that socially, in ways I don't even understand, puts pressure on me to have a good marriage. I watch him treat his wife well. I'm like, oh, I guess that's how you treat women, right? Like, like there's this social reality between us where we're like naturally connecting, watching each other, and doing what other people are doing in ways we don't even understand, right? And then, so I have all these couples, without even knowing it, they're not trying, they're not saying a word, but they are sending messages to me. Invest in your wife. Invest in your family. Invest in your children. Invest in your wife. Invest in your family. Invest in your children. This is what we do. This is what matters. This is what's important. Do it because God is amazing. Do it because that's what God has called you to do. I'm doing it. You can do it, right? And then I've been in places like— I remember talking to that one guy. He was 40, right? He's like, I'm never getting married. Every day to all these girls, a lot of them perfectly fine— would have been perfectly fine wives. He's like, I'm never getting married. I was like, why aren't you getting married? He's like, because I don't know anybody who has a good marriage. In my whole generation, they're all terrible. They're all divorced. The women are all screwing around behind them. I was like, so dude, when was the last time you were at church? <laughs> and he's like, I mean, I haven't been in church in a long time because like those people are hypocrites. I'm like, well, apparently not as bad as your friends because I know some people who are divorced in my church, but I know a lot of people because I was in a small group at that same time with six couples and I didn't know anybody who had a bad marriage. And they were all my age. And I, we were in the same cohort. But he just knew everybody who had a terrible relationship. And see how that had affected him. He's like, I don't want to get married. Right? If you would have been, if he would have been in my small group, like, he would have been like, I can't wait to get married. But he wouldn't come to it. Because we seal ourselves into these relationship structures. Most of the people I talk to who are like, just really making a lot of bad decisions, they're like, they're screwing up the tactics of life. One of the things I say is, okay, change your tactics. You need a totally new friend group. Okay? And they, but they won't, they don't want to do it because you know what happens when you get the new friend group? You're the minority. And you feel screwed up and you feel like you don't fit. Like there are people who come to church here and one of the things I love about, there's so many like really functional people and really functional families at High Point. But you know what happens when somebody who's relatively dysfunctional at this point in their life comes to High Point? You know what happens? They feel like they don't belong in a lot. They'll go to a small group. Like, I've had people tell me, I can't go to that small group. Those people are all happy. They're all married. They have jobs. Like, like I'm unemployed. Like, I'm divorced. Like, I can't go to that small group. I'm like, no, that's exactly what you need to do. You need to go to that small group. Like, and you just, like, you won't even realize what's happening to you. Right? But just, you deal with the discomfort, and if they treat you badly, you let me know, and I will, like, bring out the little pastor battle axe, and we'll, ta- we'll handle it. You know? 
Because un- in- inhospitable behavior towards new people is just as subject to church discipline as adultery. Because the flock of God receives any sheep that come to Jesus. Right? Okay. So, here's another thing, though. It's true that all of our indiscretions, our sexual immorality, works itself out. But positively, the opposite is true, right? And so as the church, one of the things we need to realize is that if we are going to be a place that supports and helps a fabric of actual sexual morality, we're going to have to look at it in kind of a holistic way and quit just thinking about playing the edges, okay? So let me give you—let me just use one example. I'm going to use the example of virginity, chastity, and continence. That is, like, the fact that if you're not married yet, right, I'm, I'm thinking of the younger cohort for this example, okay? You're not supposed to be having sex with anyone, right? And if you do things with people that produce arousal, all of those things are designed to get you to have sex with them in your body, Right? And so there's a certain amount of purity, or the, the ancient Christian authors used to call um, abstaining from sex continence, like the word we use for not peeing on ourselves. And it may be helpful for you to use that word for yourself and be like, I need to engage in some continence here, because if you think that like being promiscuous is kind of like peeing on yourself, it, like it'll help you. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's like good self-shame, right? That's what St. Augustine called it. The guy who said, who literally said, who's coming to Jesus, and he's like, God, give me continence, but not yet. Right? That was the word he used. Anyway, so one of the reasons why younger people struggle so mightily with that is not be simply because they have hormones and they want to have sex with people. It's way bigger than that, and they are very unprepared for it. So let's go through an example here. So what is the real situation for young— and I had like 15 more things on this, but Scott Kyle was like, Nick, I can't put that many things on here, okay? So one is— we have better nutrition, and so puberty starts two to three years earlier than it did for most of the history of the world. Okay? So whatever the time between the onset of puberty and marriage, it's like two or three years earlier than it was for most of human history. Okay? So that just broadens the chasm more, right? And then modesty failure. Like nobody knows what modesty even is, and we don't practice it. Okay, so let me give you an example. You're like, I don't see any plunging Vs in this service. Okay, wait. In your mind, okay— Come up with a definition of immodesty, okay? Come up with a, de- like a, de- you could write it down. If I call on you, you could tell me. What is the definition of immodesty? Right. You have to play. You have to have a definition. Otherwise, this won't work, okay? All right. Here's the definition of immodesty. Seeking to elevate yourself for some reason other than godliness in any social context. Was that your definition? Did, some, did your definition have to do with, like, cleavage or something? Right? See, that's one of the reasons why young women are so angry at us. Right? They still come to church because it's the best place to find a guy, but they're upset about this because we act as though modesty is, like, has to do with their genes or, like, how low their neck V goes or something like that and nothing else. Listen, modesty has to do with money. In the Bible, if you look at the passages that refer to modesty in the church— Both in relationship to men and women, they are mostly related to socioeconomic class and how much money you show you have when you go to church. Right? And and that modesty in church is displayed often through clothing and dress. But Paul doesn't—Paul isn't like, don't show your boobs at church. He's like, don't weave like gold stuff in your hair and go out and get like 
expensive hairdos so you can show up to church and look this way. Right? Once you realize that modesty is saying, I will only rise in any social context on the basis of godliness and character alone. Virtue is why we should respect people. And virtue alone. I don't care if you're a celebrity. I don't care if you have money. I don't care if you're young and curvy. I don't care if you've got big biceps. I don't care about what your bone structure is. None of that matters. The only thing that matters, the only reason we elevate anyone in any way is for godliness and virtue. It's the only way. And in 1 Peter, Peter says, especially to women in that context, he says, if you do that, you will adorn yourself like the, like the godly women of old, and you will not have given in to fear. Right? Because everybody knows that's not how the world works. Everybody knows that people are elevated for every other reason than godliness. And it's terrifying to think that you must commit yourself to only rising in church and the world by being godly and honest and reliable and dependable and never slandering anyone and never gossiping and doing what's right and to only be raised for that and only to be noticed for that and to not highlight anything else to get yourself up higher. Modesty is about whether or not we give in to fear, right? And we don't teach anything about that to young people, right? Then cultural sexualization, and I'm not talking about porn. We'll get to that one down here. But like, that's like encouraging girls and boys to like be girl and boy crazy. We just don't want them to have sex or touch each other. That's what produces the other stuff. I mean, think about this. Why would we want a 12 or 13-year-old girl to, like, have a crush on and have some kind of relationship, be going out with some boy, right? Now, not only is that going to lead to bad stuff as they go through high school, but the problem is, is like, here's how this is really deforming them, okay? What on earth is more boring than a 12-year-old boy? (laughs) Right? They're like, they're flipping around. They don't know what they're doing. They're really shallow. They don't know who they are, right? And we think it's cute that girls have crushes on them, Right? She have crushes on, like, I don't know, G.K. Chesterton or Sense and Sensibility or, like, I better the Packers than some boy, right? Like, and vice versa. And so, because what's hap- what happens when the 12-year-old girl has this, like, super crush on the 12-year-old boy, right? Basically, what, here's what really happens, okay? She's having worse friendships with all the other girls in her class that she's now competing with. That's what really happens. She's learning less how to really be friends with people. She's not having deep trusting friendships because in the fight to get to the top, who knows when somebody's going to stab you, right? And it's all a big wolf pack game. It's just horrible, right? So, but we, but we think that's cute. It's not cute, right? Okay, so there's that. And then there's um, putting kids like in peer groups and not into intergenerational life. Intergenerational life is where they get grounded and like what they're really going to be right? If they're around their peers, they actually think youth is life, right? And so they're going to want churches that are like youth group or school or like YouTube or something, instead of realizing like, no, like you're going to have to be an adult. You're going to have responsibilities, which means whoever you like is better, better get a job, right? The most important things in a spouse are not like, oh, he's so cute. He's got like these muscles in his stomach. No, no. What's important in a spouse is like, they work hard. They're godly. They know how to commit to things, so, and then we've got very little gospel instruction at masculine and feminine. If I put you on team, I was like, okay, explain what it means to be a man and not a woman. Go. 
Explain what it means to be a woman and not a man. Go. Right? Most people, if I put you on TV especially, you'd be like, I, mm, I, I don't think I'm allowed to say anything. Exactly. But you don't have any idea, right? In, in some ways, that's good. Like, we don't want to be like, well, you know, if you're a guy, you do that. Like, in, in like ways that are very unhelpful. Obviously, there's lots of overlaps with masculine and femininity. But like, being a man is kind of like, it's hard if there's no target. Or being a woman, it's, that's really hard if there's no target at all. That's engendered at all. And so when was the last time you looked young men in the face and said, look, being a man means this. Being a, be, like, I get asked to do that at the Christian school. Like, the kids get in about fifth grade, and they start touching girls, and they're like, can you please come talk to them? And so I don't talk to them about not touching girls. I talk to them about what a man is, and that men protect girls. They don't, like, pirate them. You know what I mean? And like, and I tell them, you've probably heard me say this before, like, if some guy touches that girl, he's not, you tackle him. That's your job. Your job is to protect him. Don't just not touch the girl. You need to, like, beat up the guy who is touching the girl. Okay? And because you've got to harness people. Where are they going? What, you tell kids, a bunch of kids not to do something. What do you think is going to happen? They're going to sit around doing nothing, thinking about the thing you told them not to do, and wondering if maybe they should do it. Right? People have to be positively harnessed in ways that are, that are not too dogmatic that the range of how they're male and female can't come out. Does that make sense? Okay. We have incredibly worldly dating paradigms. We have a way lack of shrewd teaching. Like, we don't actually tell our kids how the world works very well. So, like, one of the reasons I like taking my kids on longer drives is because they're trapped in the car, you know? And so, like, I'll get my daughter in the car, and I'll be driving along, and I'll be like, listen, you think you like that boy? But, listen, every boy that age is two boys, not just one boy. Because you think, like, oh, you're going to tell me, like, he's a crazy hormonal boy, but he's not. He's a nice boy. I'm like, no, 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 that's not what I'm telling you. I know he's a nice boy. I get he's a nice boy. He is a nice boy. Except he's two boys. That's the problem. And he's going to be two boys till he's, I don't know, maybe 25. We don't know. We'll have to see, right? But he's that nice boy until something arouses him. And then the crazy boy comes out that's completely controlled by testosterone. And he just wants to hold on to you and touch you and squeeze you in places that he doesn't have any right to squeeze you. So what you need to realize is that, like, don't fall for that whole thing where adults say that, like, he's not a nice boy. He's a testosterone boy. And you're like, I think he's a nice boy. It's not a dichotomy. It's a false dichotomy. It's not an either or. And he's probably going to grow out of it. He seems like he has honorable parents. But right now, you need to cool it and call him up into greater manhood, not give yourself away. <laughs> right? Like, that's—but, like, just that kind of basic diagnostic teaching. Okay, so—all right, there it is. Okay, so— but the, see, like, the next thing is this. So, like, if your kids don't respect your marriage at all, they don't respect you as a man or a woman, then, like, are they going to listen to you? Like, you're literally going to have to get them in, like, an ice shack out on a lake or something. Like, there's—I mean, like, they just don't want to hear it. Like, you've got you've to wor work hard, especially as they go into adolescence, but even before that, to, like, try to— Live as honorably as you can in ways that are, that are, in ways that are cheerful and happy, not just moral, so that they see your marriage and like, I want to be married. Otherwise, you know what they do? They're like, I don't want to be married. And that's just, it's unhelpful for you to be able to talk to them. It's unhelpful for them to be envisioned that honorable marriage is great if you can find a suitable person and God works that out as his, in his will in your life. Does that make sense? All right. Then we have the whole, like, culture of gratification and approval rather than, like, self-control. We've got porn portals in our pockets. We generally in the church de-emphasize godliness. I was talking to a couple of people at the sexuality conference, and they were like, I've never heard any of this stuff. There's all kinds of 20-somethings that have been in church for a while, but they didn't grow up in church at all. They don't even know premarital sex is wrong. They don't even know. They don't even think it's stupid. They don't even know. 
there's a view on it. And so like there's this one guy, he's like, yeah, I was going to this church. It's like a big mega church. It was really exciting. And he's like, but like, they didn't ever talk about anything you're not supposed to do. It was always like, Jesus is great. You can believe in Jesus. Your life can get better with Jesus. But it's not like, hey, quit having sex with your girlfriend. And no, you shouldn't live together. There's none of that. I'm like, the Bible is full of stuff you shouldn't do. It's like very well balanced. It's like, this is good. This is bad. Do this. Don't do that. It's like, it's very positive and negative in like a beautiful proportion. And they were like, yeah, but they didn't do the other proportion. I was like, well, that's not good, right? Because we, when we de-emphasize godliness, we leave people with Jesus in a profoundly weakened state, right? They don't grow stronger in faith and in godliness and in the Spirit. And when they, they don't grow in godliness and the Spirit, they're profoundly weak spiritually. And so they face sin and they continually fail. But yet the Bible says that they're going to be godly, and they're not. And so what do they do with that dissonance, right? Like, wait, I thought— so I know that I'll just lean on God, or I'll, I'll let go and let God, or I'll tell the Holy Spirit to free me from this thought, right? When the Bible says, no, it's your job to pound it to death. No, that's actually your job. The Holy Spirit helps you when you do that job, because what God wants is for you to be strong. He wants you to grow into honorable, godly, image-bearing manhood or womanhood, right? That's the whole point of your redemption, right? He forgives you and then put—it's God's will that you be sanctified, Right? And so when we de-emphasize this, is it any wonder that people find themselves weak in self-control and then therefore weak in dealing with sexual temptations and have difficulty controlling their vessel, right? And then don't get married until you have two master's degrees is not helpful, okay? Because like they enter puberty at like 12 or 11, some girls as young as 10 or even 8, Right? And then it's like, you know, when you're 26, you should be about ready academically and in terms of credentials to be open to some kind of dating relationship. In fact, you could even start dating as young as 26 and a half. Right? And, like, I cannot think of anything more profoundly unchristian than that. Okay? Let me meddle a little bit further. Okay? Because some of you, like, oh, like some of us are like, we've got kids, they're growing up, like, and we, like, you want grandchildren, and we're, you're, like, doing everything possible to make sure your kids produce none of them. Right? And so, for example, why can't your kid get married their junior year in undergrad? Like, why would you stop? If you're helping them, let's say you're paying 40% of their tuition, right? I know so many, so many young people in college, they found a suitable godly Christian person, okay? So I'm not like, I'm not saying like, oh, your daughter met somebody from a biker gang and she wants to get married at like 19 and she's a freshman in college. That sounds great. That's not what I'm saying, okay? I'm saying like they go to college, they find another godly person. You feel like they're reasonably emotionally mature because nobody's emotionally mature until their 30s anyway, right? And so, and that's if they're working hard at it. So you're like, okay, these are reasonably decent people. They clearly love each other. They're going to be dating. They want to get married. And I, what, here's what we do as Christians. We're like, look, you get married, I'm not paying for anything anymore, right? You got you to get on your own. Why would you do that? Why would you tempt them? Why would you say, listen, you can either— struggle terribly in your sexual relationship with each other while you're dating in a prolonged way that isn't necessary so that I can feel good about my, like my 1950s values, you, values about like, when you're married, you're on your own. There's no when you're married, you're on your own in this book, guys. Like that's like some kind of American culture thing. Right? And so like, I've told my daughters already. I was like, listen, I will not support educational tomfoolery or idiotic spouse options. If I don't like the guy, I'm not helping you no matter what. Like, I, but listen, if you find a suitable godly person, 
And I believe that you have a reasonably healthy relationship. I don't believe in the bigotry of if you're not 26, you're not old enough to get married. Like statistically, there is virtually no statistical difference between the age of 20 and 28 in divorce statistics, at least. If you wait from 21 to 28, you're like, I just want to be older. I want to be more mature. It doesn't really help. When you're older, you are a little bit more mature. So you're a little smarter about who you pick. When you're younger, you're a lot more pliable. So you can, you know, get together with somebody who's a little crazy. But if you're really committed to each other, you end up molding into each other a little bit better. It's, you know, six one way, half dozen the other. Right? I got married at 20. Yeah, it was a little hard early on. But now we're like really merged. My parents got married really late. And they never merged with each other. And it was also really hard. But they had a good marriage. They figured it out. Because like, I don't know, like 58% of marriage is acceptance anyway. Right? Which for those of you who are millennials, the whole like, I like everything about her except this one thing. Like you need to quit with that stuff, man. You're not looking for a perfect spouse. You're looking for a suitable spouse. Okay? So, prolonged bit, right? And so— what that ends up creating for outcomes for young people generally is three outcomes. One is there are some people that just, like, they do it, okay? Like, they, they, they say, you know, screw you, I'm getting married around 21, I met this person, I'm going to do it. Or they just, like, they're just tough. Like, or they're, like, really godly and they're just strong. Some people just don't have crazy sex drives and, like, they just— or they didn't get introduced to porn young. And they just, like, they make it, okay? Good for them. What is that, like, 5% of people in this paradigm? right? It's not a lot of people, right? So then you got these people who like basically climb through all that mess and they get out the other side, right? And you're like, wait, Nick, aren't these like dead people down there? Yep, those are dead people down there. <laughs> and you're like, what are those? Those are people who lost their virginity? No. No. What is the worst thing that can happen to anybody because of the sexual culture that we have in this example? It's that they can lose their faith. That's the worst thing. It's not to have sex with somebody. They can have sex with somebody and have like quintuplets. It's not even that big a deal spiritually. Like we'll redeem the thing. It's fine. Like don't do it. But like it's not like you're like out of sorts or something. Like there's—do you know how much sexual immorality there is in the Bible? I had somebody say recently like, oh yeah, a lot of good marriages in the Bible. Name one. Right? Yeah, like Mary and Joseph, hopefully. Like, but like, he clearly dies fairly early, right? Because Jesus has to give John to Mary to, as her protector when he's dying on the cross, right? Your son, your mother, you're gonna, why? Because Joseph's probably died by that point, so she's probably an early widow in some means, right? Maybe the Song of Songs couple, right? What is that, the first 20 minutes of their marriage? You know, like, like, yeah, it's sexy, but like, what the heck, right? So like, who else? You're like, well, surely David and Abigail. You don't even hear about that poor lady, except for she gets like stolen by some roving tribe, and David has to go find her. Like, maybe they had a great marriage, but it, the Bible doesn't say. Like, the most godly men, we hear nothing about their wives. David's probably a—or Daniel's probably a eunuch. He maybe didn't even ever get married. And then like, Joseph's the only person in the Bible nothing negative is said about. And like, we just hear he got married. That's all. That's all we know. Right? So listen, like if you've had a little bit of sexual immorality carnage, okay, so you're climbing out the other side. You've been through a lot of crap. But listen, the most important thing is this. Whether you know, you know it or not, Jesus has been with you all the way and all the time. Even if you didn't believe in him, he was closer than you thought. And if you did, yeah, he was not, he was not thrilled. 
But he, wa- he was always cheering for you to climb through the other side. He was always trying to get you through the other side. He was always in faith, pleased with you, and trying to get you to pleasing. He, like, that, that is his, that's one of Jesus' goals right now. This is the thing that's unthinkable, that people know this Christian ethic. They can't make it. They try to make the jump. They fall in the middle. They think, they feel incredibly ashamed. Nobody's like, like, we all set you up for that, sweetie. No, like, nobody's even humble about, like, how terrible a situation we put them into, right? And then we act like it's the biggest deal in the world, and it's just really unhelpful. And then they're like, well, screw this, right? Or they go and they have more promiscuous sex just to prove to themselves that it doesn't matter. The, mo- the worst thing is not that people have sex when they're not supposed to. Unbelief is the only damning sin if there's a future. Right? If you're still breathing, the only damning sin is unbelief. You understand? And that is the most important thing we need to, we need to destroy the opportunity for. We want faith, even in failure, to be believable and thinkable. Right? And so what the church has often done— is it is often just focused on like, like hazmat with the carnage, right? So like, we'll try to help people out of the pit. We'll like wash them off and give them like a church shower when they get out. And like, we're like, okay, you're gonna be fine. Like, yeah, you're probably really sexually traumatized and we don't really know what to do with that. But maybe if you get married, it'll get better. Like, we just don't even really know what to do and we don't even want to talk about most of it. But we will hose you off and that'll be nice, right? And like, what I'm saying is like, we, look, we still need to keep doing that, okay? So for the foreseeable future, w- there's going to be people we need to help pull out and help them get on track with Jesus in terms of controlling their vessel and walking in sanctification, okay? So we're going to be doing that work. But listen, I'm telling you, there are more options, all right? We could, we could work to close the chasm so that it was actually jumpable for most people. Now listen, We cannot steal the destiny of young people, just like we can't steal the destiny of people who are thinking about getting divorced. We can't make them stay together, okay? We can't make young people have continence. We can't make them. But listen, we can be their ally. You can't make your spouse not have an affair, but you can be their ally. You can make them being committed to you easier, nicer, more fun, right? You can try. Our our job is never somebody else's righteousness, but our job is always because of love— to make what they must do easier for them, more doable for them. Galatians 5 says, be careful. You might fall in there, but be careful. But it's our job to bear each other's burdens. And our burdens are not just poverty or difficulty. Our burdens are also the burden of the difficulty of godliness because we have to make every effort to move more towards Jesus, right? And so if as a church— we had a more holistic understanding of godliness, and we started doing all these things that start feeding into what people really need to grow strong and to create an environment in which these things are thinkable and to give people the support that they really require, right? We could fill in a lot of this, and we could make this jump a lot more doable. But you see, if we really just want to get by, and we don't really emphasize being sanctified— growing in godliness, learning the tactics of avoiding sexual immorality, and growing in all the areas of Christian growth and virtue, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
adding to our faith, goodness to goodness, knowledge to knowledge, self-control to knowledge, self-control, perseverance to perseverance, godliness to godliness, brotherly kindness to brotherly kindness, love. All of that, everywhere in the Bible, every time it's mentioned, we will never fill anything in. Right? Our job is not to be 17% different than the world. Right? Our job is to be 180 degrees in the opposite direction of the world. And everybody has to take their own responsibility in their union with Christ, the one who gives you his Holy Spirit, to learn how to control their vessel. But all of the rest of us can be each other's ally. We can help each other. We can make every difficult thing not only reasonable and doable, but not even that hard. Some of the things that seem to you like chasms you could never jump right now will seem to you in that future like cracks you're just stepping over in stride. And some of you know that. There are past sins that you thought getting free was unthinkable, and now they really are like cracks, and you're just walking over them. It's no big deal. That's true for every sin. They can all lose their material power and shrink in size until they're a crack. You step over, man. You're rolling. Because God has given you his Holy Spirit. That's why he demands you be holy. He's like, his remember Paul's final reason is this. Why should you be holy? Because the one who's called you to be holy is the one who has given you his Holy Spirit. He's given you the divine power. He's given you, like it says in 1 Peter, 2 Peter 1, the ability to participate in the divine nature and to overcome the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires. God, I, I know that um, being your people in Babylon is really hard for us. Especially for some of us who like, we've never lived in the godly country. Like we've never, like maybe like if we'd grown up in heaven and then we came here to live in a spiritual Babylon, like we would, we would get it, like we would see it so clearly but God, we need so much grace. We need so much help from you, Lord, to take your word revealed in Scripture and, and revealed in the man Jesus Christ for us to understand your will so that we can be unconformed to this world and transformed by the renewing of our minds. So that when your will comes before us, it doesn't seem impossible. It seems good. It seems pleasing. And it seems perfect to us. We pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.